Hey everybody, what you are about to listen to is an episode of Am I Dying? Here at Offscript, we've taken the Am I Dying show, put a twist on it, and created the new Is It Serious podcast with Dr. Mark Lewis and Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune. Think of it this way. The Am I Dying docs discuss lots of symptoms, while the Is It Serious docs answer lots of questions. And all of the episodes are here on this feed for your listening pleasure. For new episodes, don't forget to subscribe, and thanks for listening. All right, I'll just talk like this, and if this is loud enough, we'll do it. It sounds great. Oh, hold on, quickly. Mark, are you going to start, or am I? You start. And what, what should I call you guys, by first name? Yeah. Yes. Okay, should we start then? Hey everyone, it's Dr. Chris Kelly. And I'm Dr. Mark Eisenberg. And we are here to answer the age-old question, am I dying? Hey everyone, we have a very special episode today. We are joined by Dr. Benjamin Lebwall, our good friend and an absolute gentleman and scholar, who is the Director of Clinical Research at the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University and a all-around fantastic doctor and gastroenterologist. He's going to join us for two episodes. Uh, and today we're talking about celiac disease. More importantly, he's actually my doctor, so. And I'm guessing that you're his highest maintenance patient possible. I, I think I only call him with emergencies like three or four times a day. That, not that yeah, much. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> but anyway, actually, Dr. Lebowal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Chris and Mark. And of course, privacy concerns f- uh, forbid me from commenting on that last thing you just brought up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, change the number every year and he still gets it. Which, by the way, you didn't respond to my last six emails today. <laughs> So as I mentioned today, we are talking about celiac disease, uh, and you're in luck because Dr. Levwall is really a world-leading expert on this topic. Uh, we're going to cover uh, pretty much everything you could possibly want to or need to know about this condition um, and get all of our questions answered. So why don't we just start with a super simple question, which is, what is celiac disease? Well, Chris, celiac disease is an immune-related condition. It's a form of autoimmune uh, disease in which the body's immune system uh, actually attacks itself. We have immune systems to defend ourselves from uh, infection, bacteria, viruses, etc. But sometimes the immune system turns on itself. And celiac disease is unique among autoimmune conditions because we know what the trigger for that is. It's gluten in the diet. Gluten, which is a protein in wheat, rye, and barley, if eaten by someone with celiac disease, the immune system recognizes gluten as foreign and then starts to attack itself, actually. Um, and this primarily occurs in the intestine. And so it primarily, but not exclusively, causes gastrointestinal symptoms. So frequently, patients come to the gastroenterologist. Um, but patients can come to all sorts of different doctors because of the many ways in which celiac disease can present. Yeah, I mean, celiac disease, as I recall from my medical training, presents in many different confusing ways. I know that some people have to wait a long time before they're diagnosed, and we can get into all those symptoms uh, in a minute. Uh, I guess let's talk uh, for a second a little bit more about gluten. Uh, you mentioned uh, where it's found in the diet. I think some people may have the misperception that all carbohydrate foods contain gluten, and that is not true, correct? Plus, wait, one, one other thing is it's very in vogue. Everyone talks about gluten-free gluten-free that, that they need to be on a gluten-free diet. So I'm sure we're going we're gonna to talk about that in the future, what, what percentage of people really need to worry. And for the people who actually go on a gluten-free diet but don't have a gluten allergy or uh, celiac disease, if it's more dangerous. 
Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there, but what I'd say is this. Um, you know, there there is confusion about, first of all, what is gluten and, and where can you find it? And also, what are the implications for gluten? You know, on one foot, what I'd say is that if you think about macronutrients, the three being protein, carb, and fat, right? Those are the three major categories. The three loves of my life. I know, but Chris only thought there was one category, fat, right, Chris? No, no. Protein, carbs, and fat are my three greatest loves. I <laughs> uh, hope your kids aren't listening to this. So of those three, um, most of the gluten in your life is going to be in carbs. But what's confusing is actually gluten itself is a protein. And so that can sort of cause some sort of semantic confusion. It is the protein component of wheat, rye, and barley. And so many carbs, you know, you think about pastas, breads, those are wheat-based. The great majority of them are. And so that's where you're going to get most of your gluten. But you can also find gluten in unexpected places, such as condiments like soy sauce can have a wheat base um, and so can contain small amounts uh, of Wait, wait. Uh, so soy, like any type of soy sauce could actually have gluten in it? Not any type, only certain brands. And so you oh, need okay. to check. Um, and so it's not intrinsic to soy sauce, but often it's added. Often wheat or wheat protein is added to give texture. So gluten really means glue. And when you think about gluten-free food substitutes, like gluten-free bread, um, one of the complaints people often have about gluten-free substitutes is they can sometimes be crumbly because you're missing that protein component of wheat that gives uh, it its consistency, its texture. But yeah, so it's in many carbs, um, but not exclusively. It itself is a protein. And I'm sure we'll get into this further, but we know gluten is the trigger for problems in celiac disease and that a gluten-free diet is the treatment of celiac disease. But there are many people who don't have celiac disease who are avoiding gluten for a variety of reasons. And we can get into that. Um, is there anything good about gluten? Like, does it have any nutritional value? Um, so gluten in and of itself is not essential to our diet. One can have a normal, healthy diet that is gluten-free, have a normal longevity without ever having gluten. But it's ubiquitous. And so avoiding gluten entirely can be a real challenge. Yeah, it can be. Um, can we go over what foods exactly are gluten? Because we always say wheat, blah, blah, blah. But maybe we should talk about like white bread, bagels, like get more specific. Sure. So bread um, without any modifier generally contains gluten because bread is generally wheat bread. The first ingredient you're going to see is wheat. And so that's, you know, basically your tip off. Um, and, it, you know, wheat has a couple of sort of synonyms or close relatives. When you're looking at pastas, the great majority of pastas are made with wheat. And sometimes that ingredient will say semolina, but that's wheat. Okay. Wait, but when, when you're in a restaurant, you order whole wheat pasta, which honestly, I don't think anyone really likes better than regular pasta. If pasta's wheat anyway, how is that whole wheat any different than regular pasta? Well, it's because basically it's a question of whether you're taking out the germ and uh, sort of the healthy stuff uh, from the, the wheat. But regardless of its regular pasta or whole wheat pasta, which often has darker color, often sort of sits in your stomach longer and is probably healthier because of that, because it promotes satiety, you feel full. Regardless, that's gluten, okay? Gotcha. So, so and yeah, we're, you know, from those in New York, bagels, that's like a big source of, uh, of gluten, regardless of you're having a plain bagel or a whole wheat bagel, uh, or in everything, whatever, 
That's a, that's a big wallop of gluten. How about rye bread? Rye bread absolutely is gluten. So there the main base is not wheat, but rye. But rye is on the list. Wheat, rye, and barley. The great majority of Americans who eat gluten, it's primarily from wheat. That's your source. So in terms of uh, we have breads, we also have... Um... Breads, pastas, uh, beer. So there it's often barley because that's hops, you know, the primary source of barley for a lot of us in our, in our diet. But of course, there's barley that's in soup. Barley is frequently given to, you know, infants or young children uh, as a sort of breakfast meal. But yeah, wheat is the main source of gluten in the, in the American diet. And those are the, big, those are the big ones. And then you have to think about hidden sources. Like, as I said, soy sauce is a famous one. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look closely enough, you often find wheat on an ingredient where you might, you might not expect it. Let's get into the basics. What percentage of the population has celiac disease? What's the average age of onset? And what are the most of the symptoms? So nearly 1% of us has celiac disease. So one in 100. And that's the case in America. It's in the case around the world, most countries. But it's important to recognize that many people with it don't know that they have it. Um, and so you can go undiagnosed for a long period of time. In terms of the average age of diagnosis, or the, the mean or average age is in one's 30s, but it can uh, occur at any age and it can be diagnosed at any age. And one of these things that sometimes is confusing is sometimes it can develop when you're a little kid, but you might go for years, even decades before you get diagnosed. And you can get diagnosed in your 90s. Further adding to some confusion is that you can go from not having celiac disease to having celiac disease. You can develop it at any age in your life. Most people who have it, they get it at some point in their childhood or adolescence, but you can develop it in middle age or adulthood uh, or, or later. How do people know if they have celiac? What's the, what are some of the basic symptoms? Well, there's so many. It's a real chameleon. But the most common uh, symptoms people report are gastrointestinal upset, most commonly diarrhea or loose stools. So they're going to the bathroom more frequently than what's considered normal, or and their bowel movement consistency is looser. Um, now, what's considered a normal bowel movement, uh, you might have gone over this previously on, in your podcast, certainly you have in your book. It, it varies tremendously between individuals. It's anywhere between three times a day and three times a week. But what's key is if there's a change. If you used to be going once a day, and now you're going three times a day, that's a cause for concern potentially. Um, and you should get checked out. So diarrhea is one of the most common presenting symptoms, but they don't have the majority. Um, so there is no majority. It's a long tail of many different kinds of symptoms. And some of these symptoms are related to the fact that there's intestinal damage, things like bloating or even constipation, abdominal pain, frequent stomach aches. They could sometimes be related to the fact that the intestine is no longer doing its primary job, which is absorbing nutrients. So for example, if you're not absorbing dietary iron, you might develop anemia because of iron deficiency. And there, your only symptom could be fatigue, low energy, right? Oh, so someone uh, with iron deficiency anemia, one thing you should all consider is maybe you actually have gluten problems. Correct. And for example, we also absorb calcium and vitamin D in our diet and uh, low bone density, osteoporosis, and then fractures can be a sign of celiac disease. So when we see that at someone at a relatively young age, uh, celiac disease should be considered. And then there are, there are presentations or symptoms that we don't really have a great understanding of how they cause these problems, but celiac disease can sometimes be the cause, such as infertility, migraine headaches, 
neuropathy or numbness and tingling in the extremities, abnormal liver tests uh, that are seen on routine blood tests. The list goes on and on. And in some cases, we have a good sense of how exactly celiac disease is causing this problem. In other situations, we don't. But when we make the diagnosis and institute treatment, the gluten-free diet, problem gets better. You can see quickly why it's hard to make this diagnosis in some cases. But people who are really debilitated, what happens? They have a bagel and what, an hour later, a half hour later, do they have symptoms? And would the symptoms be diarrhea? It could be bloating. Is that what we're saying? The answer to that is yes, but that's only in some people. There's tremendous variability. So in some people with celiac disease, their symptoms track with what they're eating. They eat a bagel, they get sick. And whether that's diarrhea an hour after eating a bagel or nausea and vomiting within minutes of eating a bagel or prolonged stomach ache starting six hours later and lasting two days, all of those are consistent with celiac disease, but those are very different experiences and each has their own, their own experience. But then there are other people who don't have acute symptoms when they're eating or exposed to gluten, but their symptoms are more chronic and they don't track with exactly the last thing they ate. Someone has got undiagnosed and untreated celiac disease. You know, maybe they eat a sandwich every day for lunch, so that's their gluten load, but they don't get sick right after that, but they just have stomach aches all the time. And even if they're off, if they skip a day without a sandwich, they still have a stomach ache all day because they have a damaged intestine that's not processing anything else that they're eating. And it takes a while for the intestine to heal and for the immune system to no longer be attacking oneself. Just because the last thing you ate, you know, you develop abdominal pain doesn't mean that was the thing that's causing the problem. Gotcha. And if one out of 100 people actually have celiac disease, what percentage of them actually have symptoms? In other words, do 50% of people with celiac disease not even ever know they have it? Um, this proportion is changing um, and it's improving. In other words, we're be getting better at recognizing celiac disease. We're making more diagnoses. There's no doubt about it. My best guess is a little bit more than 50% of people um, in the United States with celiac disease know that they have it. Back in the year 2000, that was not even 20%. So we're definitely making progress. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we've got a lot more questions for Dr. Lebois, uh, a lot more information to share. Give us a second. We'll be right back. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Bite. Okay, Ron, we are back. Uh, we are speaking with Dr. Benjamin Lebwal. Uh, gastroenterology extraordinaire uh, from New York City, works with Dr. Mark at Columbia University and is a world-leading expert on celiac disease. And he's telling us everything we need to know about this uh, increasingly recognized condition. Uh, we've talked about uh, the key enemy here, which is gluten. We've talked about some of the foods uh, that it's found in. We've talked about some of the different symptoms that people can present with, and there's lots of them. I guess at this point, we should probably ask how you find out if you actually have this, um, if you think that you might have it. Uh, so the way to diagnose celiac disease is a combination of tests, a blood test and a biopsy of the small intestine. Uh, 
The blood tests are used to measure antibody levels against gluten itself. Um, and so people with celiac disease will make a have a reaction, an immune reaction, and will have antibodies against gluten. And they'll also have antibodies against a, uh, an enzyme called tissue transglutaminase. We call it TTG for short. It turns out to be the most accurate test we have for celiac disease. And we think that these patients make antibodies against that enzyme because it is a bystander in the event when gluten meets the immune system in the intestine. That is an enzyme that's commonly, uh, it's present everywhere, but when gluten is there, it acts on gluten and it makes it more threatening to the immune system. And so we develop antibodies against that enzyme. So that's the blood test. And then to confirm an elevated blood test, a biopsy of the small intestine is performed. Is that when you stick a needle from the outside of the body and just aim for the inside? Uh, so it's not exactly what we do. So we take a biopsy by going into the small intestine uh, via an endoscopy. And so that is a procedure. It's not surgery. Uh, we consider it a medical procedure. It's an outpatient procedure. It typically takes about 10 to 15 minutes long. Um, it's done in an endoscopy suite, which might be in a doctor's office or a surgical center or a hospital-based suite. Uh, the patient is typically lying on one's left side. And the majority of the time in this country, we do it with some anesthesia. So people are taking a nap. They're asleep during the procedure. And that's because it involves putting a tube in the mouth and going down it through the esophagus into the stomach, past the end of the stomach into the beginning of the small intestine. And because putting a tube in the mouth and swallowing a tube like that can be uncomfortable, we do give sedation so that the patient is comfortable. And during that time, a forceps is thread through that endo endoscope. Uh, and then a small amount of tissue is sampled from the small intestine, from the duodenum. It's not a large amount. Basically, we take a number of specimens. Each of these specimens is about the size of a generous piece of dandruff. And then those specimens are stained and examined by a pathologist under the microscope. And that really is the way that celiac disease is confirmed because there are changes that are seen that are characteristic, that clinch that diagnosis. Our listeners are going to want to know, besides being uncomfortable swallowing this little straw-like tube, does it hurt when you do the biopsies in the small intestines? The answer to that is a firm no. What's amazing is that we do not have um, nerve endings in our intestinal wall. And so even if someone's wide awake and they're watching, and that does happen, they can actually see a biopsy happening. They don't feel that at all. The only thing you're feeling is, you know, the tube in the back of the throat, and that's what's uncomfortable. Our intestine, it's sensitive to pressure changes. That's why we feel cramps when we have gas, for example. But the actual scraping of tissue, you don't feel. It doesn't hurt. One thing that I really want to emphasize, though, all this testing I mentioned has to be done when the patient is still eating gluten. Right. Once you start a gluten-free diet, the clock starts ticking. And if you have celiac disease, all of these abnormalities that I'm talking about, they disappear. They normalize, which is a good thing in someone after they get diagnosed with celiac disease, but can cause confusion if you're trying to figure out if someone has celiac disease to begin with. Because if someone's been on a gluten-free diet for years and then they have all this testing, everything will look normal. And we won't know if the normal result is due to that person not having celiac disease at all, or they have celiac and everything's normalized because they're gluten-free. So it's key, continue eating gluten while you're getting this testing done. 
So everybody has stomach symptoms one time or another. Should just everybody get this blood test? Like what percentage of them are actually at, like, are there false positives? The blood test is not perfect. And so there are false positives, which is why we recommend that people undergo the endoscopy with a biopsy in the event of a positive result. We don't rely only on a positive blood test, though, you know, things are starting to move in that direction and that our blood tests are getting better. And it's possible that in subsets of the population in the future, we may one day be able to rely on blood tests alone, but we're not there yet. You need to have a biopsy if that's the case. But to the, your other point, yeah, abdominal complaints are, are very common. Many of us get stomach aches. And the honest truth is we don't have a good, firm answer on who should get tested for celiac disease. But what I'd say is if, if you're having enough stomach aches that you're thinking going to the doctor, if you're having diarrhea and it's not going away after even a few days, certainly after a couple of weeks, you should get tested. Um, there are other reasons to get tested, and we went over some of those, right? Osteoporosis, iron deficiency anemia that's unexplained. And then, you know, the list keeps on uh, growing, but things like infertility without any cause that's been identified, um, recurrent migraine headaches without a cause. A lot of, you know, the neurologists who specialize in migraine, they will test for celiac disease because we don't want to miss that. What about low cholesterol, like HDL cholesterol levels? Well, um, one of the manifestations of celiac disease is low cholesterol. And the reason for that is that our intestine, if it's damaged, might not be absorbing uh, the kind of uh, dietary agents. In some ca case, that's dietary cholesterol, but in other cases, saturated fat that can lead to cholesterol uh, being prevalent in the blood. And so low cholesterol levels, particularly low good cholesterol, low HDL, can be a tip-off um, for testing for celiac. Chris, doesn't that excite you? You're a cardiologist. Absolutely. <laughs> I guess I have a question, though. If the key to um, treating celiac is just avoiding gluten, you know, let, let's say somebody comes in and says, hey, I, I think I might have celiac disease. You know, every time I eat gluten, I feel horrible. So I stopped eating gluten. I feel fine. Is it important to actually confirm the diagnosis in that person? Is there going to be more that will happen other than them just continuing to avoid gluten? Uh, the answer is yes. It's, it's important to firm up the diagnosis. And that's for a number of reasons. So, for example, people with celiac disease might be at increased risk of certain complications of celiac disease. So you want to know if you really have it. Things like, most commonly, low bone density. And so someone with celiac disease, we actually evaluate them for osteoporosis. We, do, uh, we recommend bone density measurement after diagnosis. And, you know, they're, they're also at risk of developing certain other uh, deficiencies of vitamins and minerals. And so we would test for that. And we do recommend long-term monitoring under the guidance of a dietitian. There's also implications potentially for family screening. So celiac disease can run in families. And so it's good to know if you have it or not, because then you could discuss the risks and benefits of screening your family members, your siblings, your parents, your children. But the really the most important reason of establishing a clear diagnosis, as opposed to just shrugging and saying, well, maybe you got it, try a gluten-free diet. This is a lifelong diet, and hopefully that's a long-term treatment. Uh, and the gluten-free diet, while effective, can be a long slog, right? And when traveling, when eating out, uh, these are, you know, major situations where you have to take major precautions. And it's good to know whether these precautions are absolutely necessary. If you've got celiac disease, they are absolutely necessary. Um, if you don't, and it's more like, well, you know, when I go on a low gluten or gluten-free diet, I feel somewhat better, then you're, you can be much more liberal. 
Um, uh, you don't have to have that sort of zero tolerance approach. So the gluten-free diet may help all sorts of people, but it gets old. And you need to know if you need to be on a strict lifelong gluten-free diet. Dr. Lebwald, this was outstanding. Uh, you're still my favorite doctor. And then comes Chris. <laughs> Thanks for joining us with uh, celiac disease. Uh, what, what should people do if they want any more information on celiac disease, Ben? Uh, so there are a number of uh, resources where you can learn more about it. Um, you can go to um, our website uh, at the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University. Um, and if you just Google Celiac Disease Columbia, you can find it. Uh, it's celiacdiseasecenter.columbia.edu. You can look at, uh, there are a number of national organizations uh, that are um, there to support patients, particularly regarding access to gluten-free food and educational materials like that. Um, but really talk to your healthcare practitioner, talk to your doctor before starting a gluten-free diet, because it's really key to still be eating gluten at the time that you get tested for celiac disease. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Lebel. We really appreciate you joining us. Uh, we are going to keep Dr. Lebel on for another episode, so stay tuned. Uh, he'll have a lot more information to share with us, and uh, thanks for listening. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Am I Dying is a production of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. Karen Lee is our production manager. Darren Tun is our production intern. Am I Dying is recorded, mixed, and edited by Ariel Nachman. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments and feedback. For more information, visit offscript.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.